The New Statesman podcast is sponsored by High Speed One. Demand for sustainable travel is increasing, and at High Speed One, we believe that high speed rail is the future of international journeys. A recent study shows over a third of Londoners are expecting to travel more by train in the next five years. To meet this increasing demand, High Speed One has ambitious plans to grow by offering more services and destinations, as well as preparing St Pancras International Station for growth. Find out more about the Green Gateway to Europe at highspeed1.co.uk. That's the words high speed and the number one.co. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. Hello, I'm Anoush Shikelian, Britain editor at the New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have Freddie Hayward, our political correspondent. And we've been digging around in our virtual mailbag and have brought a couple of questions from you to discuss. So I'm going to go first. This is a question we got from John. Thanks, John. Um, John asks, how powerful are select committees in holding government and other bodies to account? Highly important topic at the moment, given Lord Cameron cannot be held to account in the House of Commons. It leaves the Foreign Affairs Select Committee as the only Commons body to do so. Also consider the Business and Trade Committee back in 2015 regarding the post office scandal, which failed to move the dial until the recent docudrama. So, Freddie, do you want to have a go at either defending or (laughs) lamenting select committees? Yeah, I mean, this has come to the fore because David Cameron uh, was made foreign secretary at the reshuffle in the autumn. And essentially, he was put in the Lords so that he could join the government because he wasn't an MP. And that led to some questions about uh, how you hold such a senior member of cabinet to account Um, if he's in the Lords, and the Lords obviously aren't elected. So people thought that was quite um, undemocratic. And the the sort of the way the salve, the thing that's mollified some MPs is that you have the Foreign Select Committee, who is made up of um, MPs, and they will hold him to account as they did a couple of weeks ago. So that's the way in which they're seeing accountability play out. I mean, there's still debates going on um, about how you hold Cameron to account, I think the the speaker has asked the procedures committee to look into this, and um, I understand that the the procedures committee are going to recommend next week that David Cameron be called to the bar of the house. Now, the bar of the house is this line in the House of Commons which non-members, non-MPs can't pass. And so, what they do when they're trying to, you know, hold a, a non-member to account, they'll call someone to the bar. And the last time this happened was in uh, 1957. I think it was a uh, it was a Sunday Express uh, journalist called Sir John Juna who had uh, criticised MPs and they called him to the House um, uh, to apologise, essentially. So it, it's used extremely rarely. And well, imagine be... how many journalists they'd have to call to the bar of the House now. Yeah, there would the... be a roll call, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that would be quite extraordinary if, if, if that actually happened. So the Procedure Committee, I understand, are rec- going to recommend that. Um, then it, I think it'll be up to the Lords and the, the 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 Speaker of the House of Commons if that happens. But it'd be quite extraordinary to have David Cameron, yeah. the Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton, um, stood behind this bar in the House of Commons on TV 
uh, being held to account by MPs. So this has caused uh, you know, ramifications within Parliament about how you do this. I mean, there is some historical precedent. We've talked about it before. You know, Lord Mandelson, uh, Lord Carrington. Uh, but yeah, David Cameron, such a senior position at such a pivotal time for foreign policy, uh, people are quite irked about it and uh, MPs are looking into it. Yeah, and I think I remember reading when Cameron had just been appointed that he was nervous that that could come to pass and that it could be a way for MPs in the Commons to sort of hammer him with questions, which... You know, presumably when he took up the role, he knew he'd be slightly insulated from that, albeit, you know, the select committee is there. Yeah, and what we've essentially seen so far is Andrew Mitchell, who uh, looks after international development and some people sort of see as the deputy foreign minister. Mm. He's been taking questions in the Commons on foreign policy um, as, you know, as Cameron's deputy and Cameron's been taking questions in the Lords. Going back to the select committees, I did sit in David Cameron's appearance at the Foreign Select Committee, and I do think it was a good example of select committees being able to hold politicians to account in a way that the House of Commons can't. I mean, if you so take ministers' questions, right, this is one of the key uh, ways in which ministers and the government are held to account by MPs. It is just full of grandiloquent procedure, ritual, you know, gratitude for uh, members and uh, their constituencies. Uh, you don't get that in select committees. What you get is a chair and, you know, a group of MPs who are supposed to be experts um, in the policy area grilling uh, the politician for you know two hours, three hours at a time and they're the ones that can interrupt interject um, as Alicia Kearns, the, the chair of the Foreign Select Committee did quite well I think. Yeah, I would defend select committees as well. Um, I disagree with the with John who, who, who sent in the question about the Business and Trade Committee mm. on the Post Office scandal because if you look at those transcripts from the 2015 hearing I mean, it really is quite a robust grilling of Paula Venels in particular, who was the head of the post office at the time. Um, and they did stop prosecuting their own staff in 2015. I mean, obviously, that's, you know, <laughs> that's that's it's a low bar. Yeah, it's a low bar. And it's and, and a lot has a lot of injustice has obviously um, happened since. But it's it, it, it was, you know, it was quite significant. And it actually did feature as a seminal moment in that ITV drama mm. that's brought all of this scandal to the fore again. So I would I would defend it. And actually, I think they have a way, select committees in general, of capturing the public mood more mm. than Parliament does with all of its arcane procedure and people shouting and sort of, you know, harumphing and making all of those strange noises because they do actually look, you know, a bit more normal to the public. It's, you know, a person of note being asked questions by, you know, supposedly experts around a horseshoe table and it's not scripted in the same way. There's yeah. not as many sort of party lines being trotted out in the mm. same way. And, you know, they really do, some of these select committees that we've had over the years do stick in my mind, like Rupert Murdoch admitting it was the most humble day of my life when he was called before the culture mm -hmm. Media and Sports Select Committee in 2011 on phone hacking. Um, and you had George Entwistle, who admitted that, you know, he he hadn't asked follow-up questions about the Jimmy Savile sex abuse story. And he said that he admitted there was a culture within the BBC that allowed him uh, to get away with abuse for so many decades. I mean, that was a really memorable uh, hearing. Mike Ashley, um, you know, the founder of Sports Directors, had to go before select committees a few times. He was actually had to be summoned because he kept refusing to go. And he had major clashes with MPs. Yeah, well, this is a key point, isn't it? Were treated. It's not yeah. just... MPs and ministers that are held to account is select mm. committees can call in, you know, business exactly. leaders, charities, NGOs, both for evidence, uh, you know, and to scrutinise them in a way that the, the House can't yeah. to see, you know, elected representatives of the people uh, grill uh, 
business owners. I mean, Darren Jones sort of made his name as a backbencher doing this on the on the business select committee. Well, exactly. As did Margaret Hodge on the public accounts committee. She used to get Google, Amazon, Starbucks execs yeah. in, hammer them about the tax affairs of their sort of multinational companies, which is quite an amazing sort of privileged position to have because not only can MPs not usually do this, but most bodies can't usually hold these huge companies to account. And she actually told me when I interviewed her fairly recently that it was it was in this time that she felt like she had the most you know, influence, mm. more so than when she was a minister. She said, you know, her career was most successful in her 60s when she was chairing that committee. So I would defend their role. Yeah, and it's worth noting, I mean, the question sort of alludes to the fact that select committees don't get that much coverage. Mm. Uh, and that may be the case. I mean, they're happening all of the time. There are constant hearings going on and they don't always grab the headlines in the way that yeah. you mentioned. But nonetheless, they're still producing reports that are helpful for the media. Uh, they're used by MPs. They, they sort of have the time to collate the evidence over issues that other people might not. Um, and then when you have these quite you know, dramatic they are performative in many ways, yeah. interrogations, it puts it to the top of the headlines and they have the report to back it up. So they're not perfect, I don't think. It's also worth, you know, it's worth noting that the government, for instance, still still has a majority on these select committees. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not as if uh, they're completely separate from the Conservative Party or, or the government at the time. But in terms, you know, relative to, to Parliament, sorry, to the House of Commons... Uh, I do think that they are an effective way of holding people to account. Yeah, and there's a good point about the makeup of them because while, of course, they do reflect the sort of balance of power in Parliament, you also get very independent-minded MPs coming out of select committees who work cross-party. Um, yeah. And that's something, you know, the public generally, you know, looks you know, quite fondly on MPs who work across party on yeah. the subjects that matter to them. And and you give the example of Alicia Kearns, who obviously wasn't giving David Cameron an easy ride, even though she is also a Conservative. Yeah, and, and I think... That's partly explained by the fact that many MPC being a chair of a select committee as a good way of, you know, boosting their profile as as getting on, you know, on the, the sort of shortlist for becoming a minister. Yeah. I think the way in which the the media and their own peers see select committees has uh, changed in in recent years, in part just because we are seeing these big spectacles and we are seeing companies held to account. So they're much they've got a much greater level of legitimacy and credibility. Um, an authority, I think, uh, compared to what they used to be like. So, Freddie, it's your turn to ask our next question after the break. Can you give us a clue? Yes, we're talking about immigration. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. as well as preparing St Pancras International Station for growth. Find out more about the Green Gateway to Europe at highspeed1.co.uk. That's the words high speed and the number one.co.uk. So, Freddie, what's the question? This is a question from a YouTube listener going by at Scotland2306. 
Why do so many children of immigrants in the Conservative Party not support immigration? I think this is a really good question because it's one that I get asked quite a lot. I'm not sure whether it's because I write about this stuff a lot or whether because I'm someone whose dad was a refugee myself. Um, And also because we do have a lot of high profile conservative politicians Mm -hmm. who are involved in immigration policy at the moment. Um, So we can run through them very quickly. Rishi Sunak, he's the son of East African born Hindu parents of Indian Punjabi descent. Suella Bravman, she's the daughter of Indian parents who migrated from the UK from Mauritius and Kenya in the 60s, and Kemi Badenoch of Nigerian heritage. She she describes herself as to all intents and purposes a first-generation immigrant. And of course, the previous Home Secretary, Priti Patel, her parents were Ugandan-Asian refugees who, who fled mm. um, to seek sanctuary in the UK in the 60s. So we've got, we've got a lot of, we have got a lot of high-profile politicians with uh, immigrant backgrounds. Um, and I do understand the question that I'm often asked about this, which is sort of like they benefited from this. And so why can't they sort of extend that benefit to other people who want to come here and make a life for themselves and sort of not pull up the drawbridge? Yeah, Um, that's the phrase. Yeah, that's the phrase that's often used. And, you know, it's something that that politicians who are also of... Of, of immigrant and refugee heritage have voiced. So I remember when I interviewed Alf Dubbs, you know, the Labour peer who mm. came here on kinder transport, he told me when Priti Patel was Home Secretary that it was an irony that he'd stuck his neck out as a Westminster councillor all these years ago to put Ugandan Asian families mm. fleeing persecution to the top of the housing waiting list in Westminster so that Priti Patel's forefathers could get here. He was sort of, you know, <laughs> regretting that he'd done that in a way in the interview. And that's when this idea of, you know, why don't... Um, children of immigrant parents defend, you know, uh, immigrants and refugees. That's when it really didn't sit right with me. And I had to think about why it didn't sit right with me. And I think it's because it sort of, it just flattens someone to either the colour of their skin or where they come from um, as much as it does if you're as much as it does if you're denigrating people in the other way. So it assumes someone should have a certain political perspective Mm -hmm. just because of their heritage. Yeah, it strips Um, them of their political autonomy to have an opinion, whatever their background. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it sort of suggests that they're not sort of Brits in a 360 degree sense mm. where they, they've come here and they've developed their own opinions about how the country should be run, which I, I find quite offensive. Yeah. And there's also this undertone of the fact that because Britain is supposedly letting either this person in question or their parents, that therefore they should be grateful for yeah. that. Um, and, it's, you know, it's especially untrue I think when someone whose parents were you know refugees or came here or whatever and then the, their children were born here so they're you know as much uh, British as anyone else exactly, yeah. and then even then they're still sort of asked or questions about why they don't have certain political beliefs I mean it's, it's quite a common trope for someone on the left to look at the Conservative Party and go you know this isn't the right sort of diversity this isn't the type of diversity that they like just because um, they aren't sort of you know supporting the policies of the left even though, you know, they're from that background, which I completely agree is completely uh, dehumanising and sort of takes away their autonomy to do so. It actually reminds me of some of the debate about Shamima Begum. I mean, it's it's from Mm. a completely different perspective, but you had some on the right at the time saying that she should be stripped of her citizenship, and the government has said they want to do so as well. And the reason they could say that is because uh, Shamima Begum had Bangladeshi heritage, which opened up the opportunity for her to have dual nationality, which means that under international law, you could strip someone of um, Mm. uh, British citizenship because you can't make someone stateless, so they have to have the option of being a citizen of somewhere else, 
which of course in effect creates a dual citizenship, you know, this two-tier sort of system whereby those who have the opportunity or do have citizenship of another country have the possibility of the government stripping them of their British citizenship, which of course is impossible for those who just have sole British citizenship, which brings into question the whole idea of having so an equal universal concept of what it means to be a British citizen. Yeah, exactly. Can you ever truly be British if that's an option? You know, my exactly. dad had a Lebanese passport and a British passport. I mean, he'd gone through the whole process of becoming a British citizen. And if they'd, you know, if that if if that option of, was dangling over his head of, oh, but we can actually limit it to your yeah. Le- Lebanese citizenship, it takes away your, you know, your rights and also your identity as a British citizen. Um, just lastly on this, I think um, you often hear Sunak and Breverman and some of these politicians talk about their backgrounds. Mm. And, you know, that's very classic for a politician to do so. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But they would often say that, you know, their parents were afforded, you know, great opportunities by settling here and it helped them and in their careers. But they always follow it up by saying but they followed the rules. They came here yeah. legally, even though that is occasionally disingenuous because what they're doing in some cases is tightening the rules. So actually it would make it harder for people in similar situations to come here, you know. So, you know, it doesn't always necessarily follow, but that's what they say, you know, and I'm sure lots of our listeners who are from immigrant families will agree with me. That's quite familiar. Like, I've heard that Mm. from people in my wider family. It's quite natural to say, well, you know, we did, you know, everything we were supposed to do to come here and we built a life here and we pay our tax and, you know, all of these things that, you know, may sound a little conservative or a little unfashionable to some who make this argument. But I think that's quite common um, view among some families that have settled here. Yeah. And then there's this this broader question as well about assuming that people in who are from ethnic minorities have certain views as well. I mean, if we had... Uh, Tomoe Awale wrote a great piece for us uh, recently about London and the fact that many of the immigrant communities in London were the the sort of last resort, the saviour of Christianity in the yeah. country and how many of them were extremely socially conservative. I mean, it just goes, I mean, just, it just speaks to the fact that you can't just, obviously, obviously, I mean, it's remarkable that he's saying, but assume that someone has a political belief just because of their background. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions this week. We do read them all, so keep them coming in. If you'd like to send one, you can go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. And if you're listening on Spotify, you can just scroll down on the episode page and leave a reply. And YouTube viewers can drop a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Freddie Haywood. We'll be back next week. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. The New Statesman podcast is sponsored by High Speed One. Demand for sustainable travel is increasing, and at High Speed One, we believe that high speed rail is the future of international journeys. A recent study shows over a third of Londoners are expecting to travel more by train in the next five years. To meet this increasing demand, High Speed One has ambitious plans to grow by offering more services and destinations as well as preparing St Pancras International Station for growth. Find out more about the Green Gateway to Europe at highspeed1.co.uk. That's the words high speed and the number one.co.uk. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.